From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, December 30th. In the days after it was officially declared that Georgia's two Senate races were going to go into runoffs and that those runoffs were going to decide control of the Senate and the future of the country, there was this TikTok that went totally viral over the Internet. It was from the account of a user named Adrian Elliott. And it stars this this guy. He's kind of like this hipster-looking guy with long hair and a tank top. He looks kind of bored. And the caption of the TikTok is, me in Los Angeles talking to voters in Georgia. This guy, he puts his phone up to his ear, and his whole demeanor suddenly changes. Good afternoon. This is Megan from Alpharetta. I'm calling for Miss Petunia. Hey, Miss Petunia, how's the weather over there in Decatur? Oh, yes, it is lovely here today in Alpharetta. Clearly, he's not in Alpharetta, and clearly this is the fakest Southern accent. I'm so sorry to bother you on the Lord's Day, but I just wanted to make sure that y'all were all set up for our runoff election for Senate on January 5th. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, well, bless y'all. Yes. Yes, we have uh, Pastor Warnock, and we have uh, Mr. Ossoff. Mm Mm-hmm. Wonderful. That's great news. Okay, well, thanks so much, y'all. Have a great day. Okay, bye-bye now. Whatever it takes. Obviously, this video was a joke, and he was not actually talking to a voter in Georgia. But just the same, I wanted to hear what someone in Georgia thought about this video. My name is Rachel Polly. I'm the president of the Young Democrats of Georgia. She's also one of the 16 electors who actually voted on behalf of Georgia in the Electoral College. I don't know if you've seen this TikTok, and I'm not even on TikTok. Oh my gosh, I know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) Rachel said that this TikTok actually came up while she was talking to young Democrats in L.A. about phone banking for Georgia. They were like, should we do this? And they were talking about— Should we do this? Like, should we do the accent? Yeah, and it was—you know, they were just joking around, but— I was like, don't fake an accent. Just be aware of how quickly you're speaking. Rachel said that this TikTok is just one tiny, very silly example of how much things have changed for Democrats in Georgia in the past couple of months, both riding this high of turning the state blue for Joe Biden, but also facing these two very high-stakes races in the Senate. Yeah, we're suddenly the center of the political universe. Do you think that's good, or do you think that there are some pitfalls there? I think there's definitely good and bad to it. We've been overlooked for a really long time here in Georgia on the national stage as a battleground state. There's sort of a, an I told you so. And people are going, you're right. You told me so. Here's $20. Here's $200. Here's $2,000. And that's really making a huge difference for Georgia right now. But on, on the other side of the same coin, we've got tons of people who probably would not remember Georgia was a state three months ago, and now they're telling us exactly what we have to do to win. Rachel also said that she's been hearing from people around the country who, right after the November election, started saying, look, I want to help. I'm going to come down to Georgia. I want to volunteer. I'm going to spend the next two months knocking on doors, doing everything I can to get out the vote. We hear all of that. I'm so excited. I'm going straight to Georgia, booking my plane ticket right now. It's like nobody from Georgia invited you. (laughs) Like, I'm really sorry. We're still going to give you some pie and some cornbread when you get here, but you weren't invited. (laughs) We've been here on the ground. We know what we need. Please listen to us. 
love this story because I think that it rings really true for many of us who are not Georgians and are not in Georgia right now. We are kind of uninvited guests. We all want to know, how will this runoff election on January 5th affect us? How will it affect the Senate, the next president, the political future of the country? But we aren't really asking, what does this all mean for Georgia? What does it mean for Georgia's future? And what does it mean for Georgia's past? That's why for today's episode, we're bringing you dispatches from Georgia about these two runoff races, but also about the history that led up to these runoffs and the ways that voter suppression, both real and perceived, have collided in this one remarkable political moment. Hello, Albany, Georgia! We went to campaign rallies, saw some of the candidates and the people who are supporting those candidates. Sounds like y'all are ready to win this election! And we also talked to voters. I see, like, but I follow politics real close all day, every day. I work. We talked to people who may not end up voting. And we talked to people who are just very, very ready for this election to be over. I just need to go ahead and vote and just get this over with and be done because I'm, I'm tired of listening to this. We also spent a lot of time with one of our colleagues at The Post, Cleve Wootson. He has been living in Georgia for the past two months. Yeah, Piggly Wiggly is like the best named southern supermarket ever. Second only to Bilo, B-I. <laughs> Cleve covers national politics, and up until recently, he was covering the presidential race. We were all hyper-focused on the presidential election, as everybody is at this time of year. And then when the dust began to settle and the numbers began to shake out, and we saw that Republicans had made some gains and, and where all the numbers were, you know, everybody's eyes sort of immediately pivoted to Georgia. Of course, what makes this all so high stakes is that Republicans only have a two-seat majority in the Senate. So in a world where Democrats win both seats and the Senate is tied, Kamala Harris's role as vice president will effectively give Democrats control. So talk to me about the two incumbents in this race. Sure. Um, Kelly Leffler and David Perdue. You know, my mom and dad were public school teachers in middle Georgia. I grew up working on our family farms. I worked my way through Georgia Tech and went on to have a business career and became a Fortune 500 CEO and created tens of thousands of American jobs. David Perdue's cousin, Sonny Perdue, was the governor here. And Kelly Leffler is the richest member of the Senate. Just two months ago, I left nearly a three-decade business career to serve the great people of Georgia and our nation. But being here in this respected historic chamber is a very long way from where I started. And she was a Mitt Romney Republican, but as Trump ascended, you know, she kind of switched to becoming a Trump Republican, like many Republicans are now. And they both have tied themselves, you know, directly and specifically to being Trump's supporter and trying to tap into that group of Trump supporters that exist out there. And who are the two Democrats who are trying to unseat them? One is a 33-year-old media owner or investigative journalist named, named John Ossoff. Change has come to Georgia, and retirement is coming for Senator David Perdue. Who's run f- unsuccessfully for a House seat in 2017. And the other is Raphael Warnock. There's COVID-19, and then there's what I call COVID-16. 19 in this land, we've been trying 
to beat back this virus of racism since 1619. Who is the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. If that church sounds familiar, it's the church of Martin Luther King Jr., a big socially active church in Atlanta, Georgia. The matchup of these candidates has shaken out in some surprising ways. In the November election, Warnock, the Democrat, beat Leffler by seven percentage points. But Purdue, the Republican, beat Ossoff by less than two points. And because none of these candidates got more than 50 percent of the vote, under Georgia election law, both races went to a runoff. What you have is this tension, right? Is Georgia blue? Is it red? Is it purple? The same things that we saw in the presidential election, are we going to see those same things happen two months later? Or is it going to revert to its sort of conservative lean? Was it just a fluke? Feels like the question that especially a lot of Republicans are asking. Yeah. And the numbers are the numbers, right? The numbers of just voters who identify as liberal or conservative, that is a shift that we've been seeing over time. But whether or not that happens consistently or it flips back and forth, like, say, in North Carolina has, is one of the big questions going forward. And we'll have sort of an answer to that on January 5th. One, two, three, four. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Mic checks are like literally my favorite thing. Because <laughs> they're always so like, everybody that does it is always exasperated. It's like one, two, three, four. That is producer Ted Muldoon. We came along on this reporting trip. And one of the things we wanted to do in Georgia was go to a Warnock rally. It was the weekend before early voting began. So Warnock was all over the state, Atlanta, Athens, Augusta, Savannah. But we wanted to see him in a place that was a little bit more off the beaten track. A small city three hours south of Atlanta in Albany, Georgia. And by the way, it's Albany, not Albany, as many, many people corrected us. Because of COVID precautions, it was a car rally in the parking lot of an arena along Flint River. Well, one thing's for sure is that the Warnock campaign has a very good playlist. The speakers from the DJ were conveniently placed right next to our car. I didn't know this was a drive-in. Yeah, I've never been to one of these before. It's very Joe Biden. One of the reasons why Cleve was interested in this rally is because he has a lot of questions about this part of the state. Southwest Georgia is rural, it's poorer than other parts of the state, and it's part of the quote-unquote black belt of the South. How people in these areas rarely rarely see a politician um, or a statewide politician, but also rarely see, like, the benefit of voting, right? Like, you can vote for whatever and get a blue house and, you know, blue Senate and all that stuff, but are these things going to trickle down to the Montezumas and the Albanese of the world? And so I wonder what... He, the, the Albanese of I'm the world? Sorry, the Albanese of the world. Like, I wonder what he says to that, because it's true. There, there, are, there are dirt roads in Montezuma, you know, and there is endless construction around Atlanta. So what does he say to these, like... To, you know, to the people that live here. So there's that. This rally was also happening at a critical time in the runoff race. Warnock in particular was getting a lot of attention from Republican attack ads. Raphael Warnock attacks our military. Nobody can serve God and the military. Warnock said, what happens is Warnock has decades of sermons. He has 15 years behind the pulpit of Ebenezer alone. And... 
people have just gone through and picked out snippet after snippet after snippet. Palestinian lives gotta radical Raphael Warnock. And then put four seconds of it in a 30-second ad and say, look, this is the liberal extremist that wants to be a senator in Georgia. And then they run that ad 475,000 times on every news show. They had a debate in early December. And Kelly Leffler said the phrase, radical liberal Raphael Warnock. It was at least a dozen times, over and over and over again. And then Vice President Pence came a few days later at, a, at an aircraft hangar and, and said basically the same thing, radical liberal Raphael Warnock. So there's this effort by the Republican powers or the Republican surrogates and the Republican contenders in the race to paint him in very, very specific ways, hoping to rally those conservative voters to their side. And so one of the big questions that Cleve has been asking is, how is Warnock responding to that? Those accusations that he is radical liberal Raphael Warnock. We have a, some special guests here tonight, and we've asked them to come to the mic and show Reverend Warnock some love. One answer to that question came from the speech that Warnock gave in Albany, or in some ways what came before the speech. We pray that you stay with this campaign. It's not unusual at a campaign rally to have a pastor or a faith leader give a prayer at the beginning. What is less typical is having multiple prayers. Let us pray. Loving God, look with pity. From one pastor after another. Father, we're asking right now. After another. Amen. After another. Amen. And at some point, I looked over to Cleve, who was kind of talking quietly to Ted through his mask. Sometimes he does go more secular. Sometimes he goes more religious. Like this time he had a guy sing a hymn. This, this pastor is a master of ceremonies. But, you know, prayed over the campaign. And it's just different than tomorrow will be. And this theme became clear. Well, well, well. Sounds like y'all are ready to win this election. The campaign wanted to send this message that this is a politician who will not shy away from religion. I know that there is a lot of darkness in this moment. But the preacher dropped by Albany, who just happens to be running for Senate, to say, hold on, because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness overcometh it not. Some of this is like typical stump speech stuff. Warnock goes through his personal history, which he's told a bunch of times before. And I worked and struggled and prayed my way through Morehouse College. Graduated cum laude and thank you, laude. And then he kind of went through the arc of how he got to where he is now. I just wanted to go to Dr. King's school. I had no idea I'd become the pastor of Dr. King's church. Then Warnock got to one of his main issues that he's been running his campaign on, health care. The fact that hospitals are closing in this part of Georgia, that health insurance is unaffordable for so many people. And he used this phrase that I've heard so many Democrats use, that health care is a human right. But he went a step further in a way that I don't usually hear from politicians in the Democratic Party. When, when we were trying to pass the Affordable Care Act, I was preaching about it from my pulpit. Because I preach every Sunday in memory of a man who spent a lot of time healing the sick. Even those with pre-existing conditions. That's what blind Bartimaeus had. He had a pre-existing condition. The woman with the issue of blood had a pre-existing 
condition. And Jesus healed him and Jesus healed her. And he welcomed the stranger and he took on the concerns, not only the sickness, but the stigma of the leper. He was a man. I like that. Martine rides in the past. So uh, we just saw Warnock speak here in Albany. Um, What did he think? It's interesting that his stump speech keeps evolving. Today, he's basically tried to tell people, look, my ideas, my viewpoints, my politics are not rooted in some radical liberal ideology. They're rooted in my faith. They're rooted in in me trying to follow Martin Luther King. They're rooted in the book of Matthew. And you see over and over again him trying to combat that argument about him being out of touch. You know, his, his views being out of touch with Georgia voters by reminding folks, look, I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor. You know, justice is in the Bible. This is what I'm about, not what somebody else is saying. While I was talking to people in Georgia, I heard this phrase a few times, the evangelical left. It's not a term that I'd heard before, and in some ways it felt like an oxymoron, at least when you think about the stereotypes of what it means to be a liberal or a conservative. But the way that he's trying to position himself, especially in this speech, it feels like he's creating a blueprint for what successful Democrats in the South could look like. A politician who reminds people that many of the voters in this country who most reliably show up to church every Sunday are Black people. Black people who vote for Democrats. And you can hear in Warnock's speech that he's occupying this space where Christianity and the civil rights movement and progressivism all intersect. You know, his argument is that basically a what would Jesus do argument, right? Like Jesus would, you know, heal the sick. Jesus would feed the poor. Jesus would want you to, um, you know, take care of the least of these. And he, he keeps bringing that back almost like a shield to those who say that he's radical and liberal and radical and liberal. The question, like the big question is, you know, he's saying this to, you know, a mostly black audience in a county that went 70 percent for Biden. You know, the question is, is anybody really, really listening? Is anybody kind of on the other side of the argument really listening to him? The thing is, right now, the other side is listening to somebody else entirely. Hello, Georgia. We did. They're listening to President Trump. You know, we won Georgia, just so you understand. A couple days after the Warnock rally, we went to see Senator Perdue. He was having a little meet and greet at the Middle Georgia Regional Airport, about 90 minutes southeast of Atlanta. Perdue's plane had landed, but he was running a few minutes late. Good afternoon, everybody. I know the senator's on an important phone call with, um, I understand, the president right now, and he'll be joining us momentarily. And as we were waiting for Senator Perdue to disembark and meet the crowd, the thing that I found most notable was just how many times President Trump was mentioned. Uh, The president is on the phone now, and that's not one you can hang up on and say, look, Mr. President, I'm in Macon, Georgia. I have to call you back. (laughs) But uh, nonetheless... uh, He relies on David Has really for the last four years. Finally, when Purdue got off the phone, walked off the tarmac and into the terminal. Hey, Mallory, how you doing, man? Thank you, guys. I can't tell you how important it is. His first order of business was passing along greetings from the president. Around the state, I was just on the phone uh, with the boss, the the president, and uh, I told uh, 
the uh, president that we were in Macon, Georgia, says, oh, yeah, we had 60,000 people out there down there a few weeks ago. Yeah. And we had a good time. So I got him off his subject. But his subject was, you got to tell people in Georgia to get the vote out. He said, we worked too hard for the last four years to get all this accomplished, to let it go down the drain to these Democrats, because they will reverse the This was a fundamental part of his message, not I need you to vote for me for Senate or Georgia needs you to vote for me for Senate, but the president needs you to vote for me for Senate. I so appreciate it. Just tell your friends, family, and everybody, even some of your non-friends, tell them they got to vote. So please, this is our last chance. They're the last one standing between us and what they want to do to our country. God bless y'all. Thank you for being here. talked to Cleve about how Republicans are approaching this election. And when I did, the noticeable name-dropping in the Purdue rally suddenly made a lot more sense. Shortly after I got here, I went to a David Purdue event. What was he standing up to? The Soviet Union. What are we standing up to? What Khrushchev predicted back in the 1960s that we would He bought the, the big bus. He talked about the radicals on the other side of the ticket. And he was going through all of this stuff. And... Just a random guy in the crowd just interrupted. So what we're doing is we're asking you to stand with us. Senator, right what are you doing to, to help Donald Trump in this fraud? Case well, I'm going to tell you that. Screamed at him. What are you doing to help President Trump? Which then forced Purdue into a very sort of awkward, you know, off message defense of his record because you have all these Trump supporters. And in, in, in some senses, they're more loyal to President Trump than they are to their Georgia elected officials. And these competing incentives to support President Trump, but also to not dissuade Republicans from believing in elections, it's created a tension. The tension between Trump's claims of election fraud, rigged election, and all of this stuff, and Republicans saying at the same time, please use this system, this voting system to vote for me and get out early and, and mail in your votes and all of this stuff. They, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place because on one hand, they want to, they need to support President Trump. They need to, their political lives depend on his ability to get people out to vote for him. But it's also like you're saying, rigged, 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 broken election system, but, you know, go out and use it. Please use it in large numbers because we have to beat the Democrats. On the morning of the first day of early voting, we got up early and we drove to Cherokee County, Georgia. Cherokee County voted 69% for President Trump. And I wanted to talk to voters there to see how they're thinking, especially the voters who are planning to vote for Republican candidates. So we got there right at 8.30 when the polls opened. It was cold and rainy and the wind was blowing so hard that the car actually shook when we parked the car. But even with all that, there were still 40 people in line when we got there. My name is Laura Keen. I am working on an audio documentary about the Senate I wanted to know what was motivating Republicans in this race. But, um, I'm just curious to hear, you know, why you wanted to vote today and, and come out here on the first day. And almost nobody said, because I'm so excited to vote for these candidates. I'm not a super huge fan of Loeffler, but 
it's kind of like that's the choice I, I've made. I wouldn't say that I'm out here simply because of they're just such amazing candidates. A couple people did bring up specifically that they just didn't like Warnock or Ossoff. I think they tend to have a bit more of a socialist mindset, not upholding the, the values that the state of Georgia typically is, has uh, operated upon. And there was also this recurring theme that they just wanted to put brakes on democratic control of the government. The idea that one party would hold the presidency and the House and the Senate, it it was just too much. I just think there needs to be checks and balances. Then it kind of evens out the power, and that way one party or another doesn't have total control. But what I heard from these voters way more than anything else was that people wanted to vote in this election because of the results of the last election. Well, I think it's really important uh, for our republic to have election integrity. I feel this election has been riddled with fraud. You mean the, the, the November election? Yeah, the November election was riddled with fraud. Frankly, one of these runoffs we shouldn't even have because of the fraud. So it's, it's really our duty to come out here and, and help and save the republic. Uh, by having legitimate elections. This is a thing that I heard over and over. Whatever happened in the last election, well, maybe we'll never know. But uh, this time, we need to make sure, you know. I, I wanted to get my vote in. I mailed in a ballot last time, and I'm not doing it anymore because I don't trust them. You're worried that the ballot didn't arrive? Right. Yeah. But I don't think yeah. it got counted correctly. I don't think the process is fair right now. Mm-hmm. And I don't think everyone's vote is, is being counted. Uh, correctly. I don't. I just don't. And I think it's kind of getting whitewashed. So, I asked them why they felt so sure that the election was a scam. They mentioned reports that they'd heard about Dominion voting machines, affidavits from people who say that they witnessed election fraud. For the record, many of these allegations have been brought to courts and tossed out or dismissed, and no evidence of widespread fraud has been uncovered. Some people were honest, though, about the fact that they didn't really know for sure that fraud had occurred. It was just a feeling that they had. This sense of suspicion and anxiety seemed to hang over everything. Even one of the poll workers managing the line outside the building seemed to be aware of it. Get your ballot itself. When you print the ballot from the machine, make sure you look at that ballot. Do not just run it over to the scanner and put it in immediately. Like they're picking up on the sense of people being concerned about their votes. I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. And Especially I'm here. even concerned. I, I, like, it's my constitutional right to be here, but I'm still concerned that my vote w- won't be turned over to the other party. It's, um, um, like, the integrity of all this is questionable, and it's it's a very sad time right now for me to question it. I never have in the past. Talking to this woman really stuck with me because she really seemed to believe what she was saying. That the election system was working against people like her. That someone was trying to stop her vote from being counted. And what I thought was interesting was that she was feeling this way for the first time. Because all these voters that I talked to at this one polling place were white. And what struck me is that there are actually a lot of reasons to be concerned that Georgians are being disenfranchised, that they have been for decades. But we're not talking about white Georgians. We're not talking about secret acts of fraud. We're talking about state policies that are totally out in the open. Purging people from voter rolls, preventing same-day voter registration, policies that have historically had a disproportionate impact on Black people. And even the central fact of this election itself, the fact that a runoff is happening for these two Senate seats, it's part of a legacy of voter suppression. 
The runoff, particularly the general election runoff, has no benefit to democracy. That's Andrea Young, executive director of the ACLU in Georgia. I think it's unreasonable. It's very costly. And, you know, the history of it is rooted in ensuring that the white majority has the candidate of their choice. Runoffs in the United States, they're quite rare. They were first sort of adopted in the South. And since then, some of the Southern states have gotten rid of them. And that's Joshua Holzer, assistant professor of political science at Westminster College in Missouri. The idea behind runoffs is very basic. You want the people who win an election to have gotten the votes of some significant portion of the population. Like, if you have seven people running in a primary, you don't want the candidate who got 20 percent of the vote to just automatically win. I think a lot of people would say that it's not a controversial idea to have an electoral system where someone is required to have a majority. But in Georgia, the original intention was much more complicated than that. And it goes all the way back to 1917 and white lawmakers figuring out exactly how to keep Black people in the South from being able to vote. They decided to adopt a controversial system called the county unit system. Which was a very kind of Byzantine way of undermining the impact of votes from the big population centers that tended to have lots of Black people. To describe how it works, they decided to give counties essentially electoral votes, roughly based on their population. If you were in a rural county, your county had two votes. It's sort of like the Electoral College, except that this was just for statewide primaries. And if you lived in a dense urban county, your county got six votes in the primary. And it may seem fair that urban counties got Six votes, that's more than two, right? That's three times as much as two. But the thing is, is that urban counties had much more than three times as much population as these rural counties. And those urban counties had a larger proportion of Black people. So effectively, this county unit system had the effect of giving rural areas of Georgia more influence and individuals that lived in these urban counties less influence. For decades, this county unit system was incredibly effective in erasing the black vote and reinforcing white supremacy in Georgia. Okay, so fast forward. Number 112, James H. Gray is chairman of the Georgia State Democratic... In 1963, the Supreme Court got involved. In the urban counties where the Negroes were voting, in a reasonable proportion of their population, their votes didn't count. A lawsuit alleged that this voting system was disproportional, which it was. Now, actually, how much rationality is in this system? The Supreme Court rules that this county unit system is unconstitutional. It's a violation of the one-person, one-vote principle. And Georgia has to decide, okay, what are we going to use to replace this county unit system? Basically, what is the legal way to ensure that the votes of Black people still won't have any power? Their concern was that if you had a plurality election, white candidates might divide the vote. And so Black voters voting together could get the candidate of their choice. And the man who came up with the solution to this problem was the same person who'd been defending the county unit system in the first place. I made the last county unit speech made on the floor of the House in 1963. And uh, I said then that I was for the county unit system yesterday, I'm for it today, and I'll be for it tomorrow. 
That man was Denmark Groover, a Democrat and a very proud segregationist. When I first started off, I was uh, a social conservative. And in those days, social conservative almost meant a segregationist. Uh, well, it, it, it meant segregationist, let's not. In 1964, after the Supreme Court struck down the county unit system, Groover came out with this new idea. He wanted to use a runoff for primaries if a candidate did not win 50% of the vote. I had introduced a bill to require that they be elected by a majority vote. At the time, he literally said that his rationale for this was to, quote, prevent the Negro block vote from controlling the elections. He thought that using a runoff system would ensure that white candidates would have basically a second chance to ensure that a white candidate one, because you know, in Georgia, maybe 32% of the population is African-American. So even if all black Georgians pool their vote in favor of one candidate, they would never reach a majority. So Denmark Groover proposes, let's adopt this runoff system. And it passes, but only for the primaries. A couple of years later, they adopted runoff elections for the general election for governor, and then they also adopted it for other statewide offices, secretary of state, attorney general, for instance, and then the congressional delegation, U.S. senators, members of the U.S. House of Representatives. So when you look back at what has happened since then, how successful do you think that system has been in this original objective this idea of runoffs are going to prevent black candidates from being successful. It's been very successful. I mean, to to date, Georgia has never elected a single African-American U.S. senator or governor or lieutenant governor. It didn't elect its first African-American attorney general until 1998. And you believe that is at least in significant part because of the runoff system. Yeah, absolutely. One of the downsides of runoff elections is that typically there's less voter turnout in the second round. This is a result of voter exhaustion. I mean, keep in mind, in Georgia, you could have two rounds for the primaries and two rounds for the general election. You could be voting four times. One of the ways that it functions is, of course, because of historic disadvantage African-Americans tend to be lower income, you know, more likely to, say, punch a time clock and so forth. That's Andrea Young again from the ACLU in Georgia. So you tend to have a big drop off for runoffs. And so often the person who wins a runoff will get far fewer votes than were cast in the general election. In some cases, this runoff system has worked in surprising or unintended ways. In Atlanta, for example, where Black people are the majority, it has helped ensure the success of Black candidates. But the system also has a profound effect on voters. It makes voting very burdensome. It's like it's never final. And so it's like this almost like this war of attrition to just grind you down. In Warnock's case, if he wins, if he wins, he'll be the first African-American U.S. senator from the state of Georgia ever. So there's a push by his campaign to get people to come out to vote. But from the perspective of those that would be voting for him, they might be thinking to themselves, well, didn't I vote for him last year? And didn't I vote for him last month? And then didn't, and now I have to vote for him again next month? How many times do I have to vote? So individuals may feel like 
their votes don't matter. They may feel like, ah, oh, geez, I had to vote a third time for an individual that probably is not going to even win anyway because no African-American has won up to this point. This, this system was designed to prevent that from happening. The voter suppression that Georgia voters have to overcome to participate in our elections is getting more and more sophisticated. And it is getting more and more intense as it becomes more and more clear that young people are not buying what Republicans are selling. Nse Ufat is the CEO of the New Georgia Project. It's a voter registration organization founded by Stacey Abrams. They're one of the groups credited for flipping Georgia blue for Biden in November. No one required more convincing and proving than Georgians themselves. And part of that has to do with Georgia's long history of racist voter suppression and its recent history of a racist voter suppression. Ensay said that, yes, the origins of the runoff system are discriminatory. But it's only one example of the problems that she sees in every election, even the most recent one. Voters in line for 11 hours. Hell, on November 3rd, we woke up and learned that over 100 polling locations in metro Atlanta had been moved in the days before we were all set to vote. And so... We were able to deploy over 100 volunteers to stand at the old polling locations with sandwich boards that directed people to where their new polling location was. And the fact that voters have to worry about their polling place being moved last minute or being purged from the voter registration list or waiting in line for an entire day. Ensay says that that's what discourages Black people in Georgia from voting. And yet there's still this idea that Black people just care less or aren't paying attention and that what happened in November was just a fluke. They think that Black people don't vote, that Latinos are not citizens, that Asian Americans are secret Republicans, young people are unreliable, and that white women lie about who they're going to vote for. Oh, and then there's the mythical unicorn of a moderate Republican who, like, Republicans vote for Republicans. I think that they also need to be clear that Trump won 71 percent of white votes in Georgia and still lost. That it is without question a multiracial, multiethnic, multilingual, multigenerational progressive majority that is anchored and led by Black voters. That is what it takes to win in Georgia. But it also takes turnout, and it takes helping people overcome logistical hurdles, like having the time to get to a polling place, having transportation, having a valid ID, even understanding the very unique circumstances of this election. I think that there is a lot of voter education that has to happen because many of us, particularly, you know, college-educated people, make assumptions that people even know, appreciate, or understand what a runoff is. We have to talk about what a runoff is that they can vote in three seat races. It's the two U.S. Senate runoffs and the Public Service Commission. There's a lot that has to happen. And again, that's why using trusted messengers, that's why we've been in these folks' phones, on their porches, and in their inboxes for years. And since November, all these efforts have gotten even more intense. 
Campaigns and independent groups have spent more than $400 million in advertisements. People are constantly getting texts and emails and phone calls. But according to Ensay, there is only one thing that reliably gets people to show up to the polls. It's always going to be high-quality, face-to-face conversations with Georgians when possible. But what does that even mean? Like, what does a high-quality face-to-face conversation actually look like in the real world? Macon County is in central Georgia. It's got about 13,000 people. It's got cotton farms and pecan orchards. Ted and I drove out there on a Saturday morning with a group of people who have become very good at quote-unquote high-quality face-to-face conversations. They're not paid. They're not with Fair Fight Action or Black Voters Matter or the New Georgia Project or any of these other high-profile organizations. They're just a group of people who decided that they would meet up on Saturdays at a place like the Pickly Wiggly to walk around the neighborhood and try to get people registered. Yeah. Do you want to, or we can split up, or? Yeah, sure. Yeah, do, do you wanna... Canvassing is inherently awkward. And canvassing with a couple of podcast journalists wearing headphones and carrying mics is even more awkward. So Ted and I split up. And Ted tagged along with a man named Bob Melvin. See, what we do when we go into a neighborhood, we um, set up people get on one side of the street so we can clear the whole street out uh, fairly quickly. And so you have two or three on one side and... There are two things you need to know about Bob Melvin. One, he seems to know everyone in his district. Registered voter? Shelly, right? All right, man. Hey, we're looking for your win. Two, he's got a really loud knock. And if you answer the door... Good morning! You better be a registered voter. Because if not, you're going to feel real bad. Hey, good morning! How are you? That's fine. I can't. I can't see behind that door now. I can't see behind that door. Commissioner Bob Melvin. Who? Commissioner Bob Melvin. I'm your commissioner in this district. You vote? Mm-mm. Nah. Come on, nah. Why you don't vote? Bob gets this genuinely pained expression on his face when he hears this. Bob's the county commissioner of District 5 in Macon County. There are somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 potential voters in his district. And week after week this year, he's been out here canvassing. How many times have you hit this neighborhood once? This is the first time for the runoff, but this is about the third time for the uh, general and the primary. Macon County is majority black. It reliably votes for Democrats. Bob's a Democrat. And Bob says there just isn't enough access to good health care. Some hospitals have closed. Others are extremely under-resourced. And surrounding counties are in the same boat. And so what we're trying to push next year is to have some type of uh, urgent care or medical care facility. An important local issue in the middle of a global pandemic. As commissioner, it's his job to push these sorts of local issues. Things like hospitals, rural internet access. There's a guiding principle here. If you want people to get invested in national politics, you have to start local with local issues that directly impact people's day-to-day lives. But before any of that, Bob needs people to turn out and vote for him first. So while he's out here trying to register voters, he's also taking the opportunity to introduce himself. So a lot of people may not know me by name. And I'm like, well, Commissioner Melvin, they, you know, probably seen me in an article. One lady told me one time, she was like, oh, you're Bob Melvin. Uh, I was thinking you were a white guy. (laughs) (laughs) Good morning. 
Hey, I'm Bob Melvin, Commissioner Melvin. This is my district over here, District 5. And we are putting some information out for the runoff election on January 5th for Reverend Warnock, uh, for Mr. John Alsop and Daniel Blackman. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we just out this morning. Are you a registered voter? Mm -hmm. Oh, come on. Yeah. Why? Why? Well, what, what can we do to change that? I may send somebody over here today to see mm -hmm. can we get you registered. Will you be willing to do that? Mm -hmm. Okay, it's going to be important that you vote in the Senate race, even mm -hmm. though you can't vote now, but we got some other things coming up next year. Okay. And we need you on the local level more than anything as well. All right, don't let me down. I'll be counting on you. Okay. I spend most of my time doing vote education. So how many people do you actually sit down with and kind of go through the... It's a lot. It's <laughs> a lot of people. So, what may start out um, that we're going to be out for two hours may end up being four or five hours. You know I mean, because, because, because this isn't just like knocking on the door, leaving a door hanger, and then moving on. Bob is spending something like 10 minutes with each person who opens the door. And in some cases, he's spending way more. I'm about to come back and have a conversation with you. How old are you? <laughs> I did 13 in March. Come on. Like this woman here. When she first answers the door, she's clearly not really into whatever Bob is selling. But after some convincing, Bob starts to get her registered. But not only that. Are you, are you going to school? Are you in college or something? Why not? He also offers to help sign her up for the local GED program. You want me to call Ms. Lillian so she can handle, handle you personally, so she can kind of get you in and work around your schedule? Hey, Ms. Lillian, how are you? I got a young lady. She needs to sign up for the GED program. This was just the first neighborhood Bob is hitting today. We've got three more lined up. Hey, sorry about that. Took a little more time. We got to do a little work over here, Cassetta. Oh, man, we got to do a little more work over here. Bob is part of this small working group in Macon County, trying to get people registered. There's not a county Democratic committee in Macon, so resources are scarce. The money is just not here in a rural community. I mean, nobody else is doing this work besides you, right? Uh, you got the Black Voter Matters and you got the NAACP, but we're all working together. Yeah. Now, we're pooling our resources together. See, this is our get out and vote. As we get back into the car to head to yet another neighborhood, we're talking about why he's doing this work, what keeps him going week after week. That's when Bob casually drops the fact that he's got cancer. He's on chemo, which means his immune system is suppressed. He tells me that his wife and the women that he's out here with today get worried about him, that he's still knocking on doors, talking to people face to face. He tells me that's why he's wearing two masks. In the next neighborhood, we find a very similar situation. More people than not Bob talks with are not registered. So, <laughs> man, we, are, we have done this area. Yeah. What are you feeling right now? Uh, I'm going to hold that one. I'm going to hold that one to you. We also ran into a lot of people who did plan on voting and who were really informed about the election. 
That was the case for one guy in particular who was getting out of his car just as all these canvassers were walking by. And thank y'all, thank y'all for being out here doing this, you know what I mean? Because it means a lot. Yeah, somebody's going to help us out. Jerome Williams. Jerome is very into politics, and he's super plugged into political news. I woke up this morning, you know, looking at the news, seeing, well, you know, they rejected that uh, ridiculous filing from Texas. You know, to overturn the election, how are you going to get a state to say, I don't like the state, that state's results, we're going to file a lawsuit and overturn it. That makes no sense at all. And then you got a hundred and something Republicans to sign on to it to support it. I think they need to face consequences for doing that. You, you wanna, you, all of this, you wanna, by the way, is spot on accurate. Texas did file a lawsuit against Georgia and three other states seeking to invalidate their election results. 106 Republican members of Congress signed on to that lawsuit. And Jerome knows all of this. He also knows that people would assume that he doesn't know this. They make assumptions about his level of political engagement because of what he looks like or how he talks, the fact that he grew up poor, that he's been incarcerated. And yet he's actually a prize voter for the Democratic Party. I was coming from Atlanta yesterday, and I saw him flying an airplane, a Benham, and it said, OSAF equals higher taxes. And I laughed at it because the Republican Party is full of lies. They, that's all they do. And like I say, y'all, maybe I may not see like, but I follow politics real close all day, every day. I work, you know, I work, take care of my family. I'm married, kids, I do it all. So I just want the dream, and I don't want the dream just for me. People like me, you know. Okay. So, so I want you to share a message with other folks so they can know why this election is important. So the whole world, not just yeah. the state, is watching. Yeah, because see, this, 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 runoff, this runoff race is not just based on Georgia. This, Georgia had the opportunity to change the entire country. You know what I mean? This race is that important. Everything lies on it. Jerome in this moment is like the dream for these canvassers. Someone who is relatively young, who didn't used to vote, but has become incredibly politically engaged. And the goal is to create more Jeromes, to find more Democrats, and to get them to be more consistent and reliable voters. So this is where someone like Miss Cassetta comes in. Hi, my name is Cassetta Journey. Some say Cassetta, but I answer to the both. And uh, I'm a retired citizen. Everybody I met called her Miss Cassetta, so I am calling her Miss Cassetta. And just like Bob, Miss Cassetta is an expert canvasser. She knows everybody. She goes up to a door, she looks through the screen, and immediately she's like, hey, I know you, I know your grandmother, or uh, you went to school with my daughter, or I registered you to vote a couple years ago. But unlike Bob, Miss Cassetta does not hold public office. She doesn't work for a nonprofit. She doesn't really have any official role. You just get the sense that she loves to knock on people's doors. Did they leave them? Usually, if I tell them I'm coming back, I'll come back. Because to me, missing their vote is like missing money. <laughs> Hello? Ms. Cassetta has made it her mission to get every friend, family member, neighbor, and acquaintance to register to vote. It's something that she says is even more important because, in Georgia, people can be purged from the voter roll without even realizing it. So Cassetta has this thing that she does to figure out who she needs to re-register. Believe it or not, a lot of people don't know how politicians get that information. And I tell them, politicians get your information about what you put on social media. Like me, myself, you know, I would go through all my friends' profile. 
I see, I know where they live. All I need a name, a birthday, and I will check their status. And if I see, you just like basically, <laughs> I don't want to call it stalking, but you like no, look up your friends stalking. and you it's free information because you put out there. I don't let them know that's how I get it, but that's my way of finding the people that I need to make sure that they vote yeah. by any means necessary, but the right way. <laughs> yeah, and so. The thing that was so effective about Miss Cassetta, though, was not just how she found people to reach out to, but also the way that she talks to people when she gets there. Whereas Bob can be a little exasperated, like, why aren't you voting? Miss Cassetta has this, like, unbridled enthusiasm and also incredible patience. So one example of this, um, we went to the house of a woman named Janie Daniels, who is 80 years old. Okay, oh, this is Miss Janie. Hi, I'm Martine. Nice to meet you. Yeah, and I registered her the last time, but she had to go out. Janie was hoping to be able to vote, but she wasn't totally clear on some of the details of when the election was or what the seats are in the runoff. She also has a lot of trouble with her vision. And she had this piece of paper with all the candidates' names on it and little photos of each of them. She's going to go. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, she had a problem with reading. I said, no oh, problem. That's right. That's my problem. We, that's okay. That's okay. Because I can assist you. Okay. And see, like you know already. Know she I, already knew by that paper. Th- this is the paper with all the names and pictures of the candidates. Mm-hmm. You knew who you wanted to vote for? Uh-huh. Yes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she already know. Because that site, she know. She got an understanding of what's going on. Because I always see, see them. Uh-huh. What she y'all want to deal with this in here? And other yeah. words, the lady and the two guys. Mm-hmm. Can, can I can I ask who you are planning to vote for? Um, I can't call his name. Rachel, uh, Raphael. See? Mm-hmm. Why not? Run, run, and run. You gotta, and you got to vote for two. Yeah, Raphael. And then this one here, uh, Kelly. No, you can't vote for one. Oh, no, 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 no. See? Warnock and Leffler are running for the actual same seat, so she cannot vote for both, which Miss Janie quickly realizes. Yeah. We got so five side. Okay. Oh, so you yeah. don't want to. So I want to vote for this one here. Uh huh. And that one. Uh huh. But you got to choose one out of these two too. Cause we need. We need. No, I, I'm trying to vote for some. Need somebody to help okay. me. Okay. She's basically saying, no, I just want to vote for Reverend Warnock. I don't know about this other guy, John Ossoff, that you're showing me. Yeah, okay. But you got to vote for the Democrats. But that's what I know. You want to vote for Cause all these gonna be on Democrat ballot. Yeah. See? But yeah. I know, I know, I know this face. Yeah. All, yeah. At this point, Cassetta starts pointing at each of the faces on this piece of paper, one by one. And I think it's worth stopping here to explain that if Cassetta were canvassing on behalf of a nonprofit organization, a 501c, what she's doing here would not be legal. Nonprofits aren't supposed to make political endorsements or steer people to vote for one candidate or party over another. But for Ms. Cassetta, one of the benefits of doing this completely on her own is that when she's talking to voters, she can say what she wants. And she does. You know his face. Good deal. Yeah. Yeah. But this one, he's a good guy, too. Mm-hmm. And this one, he's a good guy. Okay, but all the, rest, guy. all the rest of them. Bad guy. Out the picture. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This here is John Ossoff. He's a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And then that guy. Rafi- uh, that's old Dave Purdue. That's Purdue. That's a chicken man. No, he's not affiliated with the Purdue's that do chicken. 
Don't get it mixed up. Okay, okay. Oh, ma'am. Okay. He just got that last name. He just got the last name. Okay, yeah. David Purdue. He's a crook. Then we got Raphael. The That's a good guy. Yeah. And we got Dane Black. That's a good guy. Good guy. Okay. Okay. All right. Do you remember that? Okay. I just have to say, <laughs> Kelly Loeffler's picture has like all kinds of crosses all over it. And yeah. That, mm -hmm. that kind of help her distinguish. To understand what I'm coming yeah. from. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. her, no, her. You, you usually vote for Democrats and that's what anyway. you want to do this. Anyway. Uh, if I do. Yeah. And this is about the second time I voted. I'm going to be voting. Some people might argue that Cassetta here is doing too much coaching, telling Janie which candidates are quote-unquote good and which are bad. But it's worth bearing in mind that Miss Janie is not a typical Georgia voter. She's older, she has poor eyesight, she relies on other people for transportation, she's harder to reach. And for the Democratic Party, she is a costly voter. She costs a lot of time and resources to actually get her to the polls, to know that she is, in fact, going to vote. So many canvassers would just consider her not enough of a likely voter to expend all this energy. But say what you will about Cassetta's tactics or if she's doing too much, she is actually taking the time to make sure that Miss Janey does vote. But you know what? Hmm? I'm going to call you later. Okay. And, uh, By the time that Cassetta is done with Janie, literally everyone else in the group is waiting for her back by the van. But she says that that's just how it goes when you're doing canvassing the right way. I, you know, you have to give them conversation. You just can't make think you're trying to get information, then gone. That's when they don't trust you. Yeah. You got to make sure they know who you are, make them remember and all that. And you see the bond that she and I, it's like, we're the friends. So you don't come and say, I need you this, I need that. You don't do that. You got to have a conversation. You can't rush them. In the couple of weeks since we were in Georgia, I keep thinking about that line from Miss Cassetta. You can't come say, I need you for this. I need you for that. And it made me realize that maybe this is the problem with this whole runoff. The fact that the message coming from the whole rest of the country, from both Democrats and Republicans, from the president and the president-elect, is we need you. Our future relies on you. It reminded me of something that Ensay from the New Georgia Project had said about how she doesn't want these voters to feel used. Georgia voters have the opportunity to flip the balance of power in the United States Senate isn't about a gift to other Americans or to voters in other states. It is to highlight and underscore how powerful Georgia voters are and why they need to show up and vote and take every opportunity to vote that they can. So far in this election, it seems like Georgia voters are doing exactly that. A week into early voting, the number of votes cast was on track with the turnout in the general election in November. But whatever happens as a result of this runoff, whatever happens in the Senate, whatever happens to Trump and to Biden and the rest of the country and the world, it's worth making sure that we don't forget about what will happen to Georgians. Are you there? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. On Tuesday, Ted reached out to Bob Melvin, the Macon County Commissioner. He just wanted to fact-check something last minute and let him know that the story was going to be on the podcast on the next day. But it turned out that since we'd gone canvassing with Bob, something pretty major had happened. God, Bob, I can't believe you got COVID. How are you feeling? I feel terrible. 
I feel terrible. Uh, yesterday, I went to the cancer center for a checkup, <clears throat> and my uh, oncologist like, Bobby, like, you don't feel well. I said, I don't, you know. And she was like, I need you to go get tested uh, for COVID or get tested for the flu. And um, I tested negative for the flu, but positive for the COVID. And just like I'm just aching all over. It's a flu ten times worse. <laughs> to me, it is. Yeah, I'm you sure. Know, I'm sure. Aching and fever. Right, right, right. How does it make you feel? I mean, do you have any regrets about, you know, going out there or do you? No, I don't, I don't have any regrets at all because I can't pinpoint where I picked yeah. up the COVID virus from. That's true. No, I, can't, I can't really say that. You know what I mean? Bob told Ted that, if anything, getting sick actually made him reflect more on the issues that he's been talking to people about while canvassing. When Bob realized that he was sick, it was harder than it should have been for him to find a place where he could get tested. He ended up having to go somewhere in another county, about 20 miles away. More than ever, it's clear to him that he and his community don't have the medical resources that they deserve. And he's still holding out hope that whoever wins two of these most expensive Senate races in American history, that they could potentially change that. It really drives home the message that the rural community is at a disadvantage. And the more that I see everybody's getting the vaccines and, you know, where they're going to understand the, understand the frontline workers are first, and then they'll trickle down. But what about the rural communities? You know, when you're in a big city, you got maybe eight, nine hospitals. We don't have a hospital in my county. We don't have a hospital in Dooley County. Some of the numbers that I've been watching on CNN, it's like they don't spend almost 500 and. 20-something million dollars on this election. You know what we could do with 520-something million dollars in the rural communities? That would supply a lot of money for a hospital. This story was reported and produced by Ted Muldoon and me, Martine Powers. Ted also sound designed today's episode. Additional reporting and insights came from national political reporter Cleve Wootson. The story was edited by Maggie Penman and Rena Flores. That's it for today's Post Reports. Thanks for listening. 2020 has been quite a year, and we are so grateful to you, our listeners, for sticking with us through all of it. If you want to show your support for this podcast and the journalism that we bring you, become a subscriber to The Washington Post. Go to postreports.com offer or find a link to subscribe in today's show notes. We are taking the next couple of days off for the new year. We hope that you all have a safe and happy start to 2021. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.